If you have your Bibles with you this evening, I would invite you to turn to the book of Joshua. We'll be looking this evening at Joshua chapter 22 as we approach the end of this book. Just two more sermons after this sermon, and we will have worked our way through the book of Joshua. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Joshua 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God, and to walk in all His ways, and to keep His commandments, and to cling to Him, and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers." So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land which they possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel. Every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, 
What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God the Lord, the Mighty One, God the Lord, He knows, and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord? the God of Israel. For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord. By building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before this tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. 
Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this evening. And we rejoice to read your word. Lord, we are thankful that you have given to us your word. And we are thankful you give to us your spirit. That your word might take deep root in our hearts. Bless us this evening, O Lord. Help us to understand your word. This we ask in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Well, we are entering now into the last main division of the book of Joshua. We have seen three divisions beforehand. First, as Israel entered the land in chapters 1 through 4. Then as they were conquering the land in chapters 5 through 12. And then as they began to possess and divide the land in chapters 13 through 21. And so now we come into a section where Israel begins to retain the land in chapters 22 through 24. This is what we might term the application section of Joshua. Each of the last three chapters, you may notice if you look at the beginning of each chapter, begins with Joshua summoning Israel to come to him that he might speak to them. And so right after the end of Joshua 21, where we have this richly theological statement that the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession and not one word of all the good promises of the Lord had failed. All had come to pass. Right after this section which emphasized God's faithfulness we now have Israel's response to the faithfulness of God. And so here now, in chapter 22, we see that Israel must respond to God's faithfulness. And so we see three things here this evening. First, we see the blessings of faithfulness in the first nine verses. And then second, from verses 10 to 29, we see a concern for godliness... And then finally, in verses 30 through 34, we see an encouraging ending. Let's begin by looking at the blessings of faithfulness. The blessings of faithfulness come to Israel in first the approval for their obedience. We are brought back to the two and a half tribes of Reuben, of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. You may recall we dealt with them previously in Joshua chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. They had seen the land on the eastern side of the Jordan and said, This looks pretty nice. Can we settle here? And Moses had gone to them and said, You may settle here, 
but not by way of avoiding the conflict in the land of Canaan. You must help your brothers in the war against the Canaanites. And they were strongly enjoined to assist their brothers for the rest of the conquest. And so now the words that Joshua speaks are sweet words to our ears. In verse 2, we hear that they have done all the things that Moses has commanded them. At the end of verse 2, we learn that they have listened to Joshua's voice. In verse 3, we see that they have not forsaken their brothers even through these many days. We have to understand that this war took about seven years. And so for seven years, they did not settle in their land until God had given all of Israel rest. They had been careful throughout all of this time to obey the Lord, we see at the end of verse 3. And all of this reminds us of the words we long to hear from Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now this is an encouragement for us. Because there is more to this than simply one event. This reminds us that obedience to the Lord is really possible. So often we struggle with sin that we wonder if we can ever really even keep any of God's commands. Well, what this passage helps us to understand that we are in a war, a war with sin, but by God's grace we can win in that fight. Sin will not be victorious over us. There is a reason for that, and that is because we are under grace. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now some take this passage and take it to mean that we can do whatever we want, because the law of God doesn't apply. We're under some different dispensation called grace where we can even sin and God doesn't care. But that's not what Paul is saying. I think what Paul is saying is he's echoing what's happening in Joshua 22. What Paul is saying is that we can have victory over sin because of the grace of God. Because we are not under the dominion of sin but under the dominion of grace. God, through His grace, can give us victory over sin. It's also important for us to see that encouraging God's people is appropriate. Have you ever felt like you couldn't give a brother or sister encouragement or to tell them they've done well or you're so glad for what they have been able to accomplish because you somehow fear it will reflect badly on your view of God? What Joshua 22 tells us is we should give God the chief praise in everything. But we should not be afraid to spur on His people in their obedience. Joshua clearly tells them that he is glad in the Lord for what they have been able to accomplish, for how they have obeyed. This is what it means to get approval for obedience. The next thing that Joshua does, is he begins to call the tribes to continued faithfulness. It is a call to constancy in the Lord. Now, the order in which Joshua does this is important. You see, first he gives encouragement, then he gives them a commandment. 
Because Joshua is not trying to manipulate the tribes into obeying. He's not trying to tell them, if you obey the commandment, then therefore you will get all of these things. He's saying, you have already been blessed. You are already good in what you have done. Now you must continue in it. This is the biblical pattern, isn't it? It's what Paul does in virtually every one of his letters. For the first half or so of the letter, he encourages the people of the church he's writing to. He tells them of the glories of Jesus and of all that they've received and of all the blessings they have. And then he calls them to continued obedience in light of what God has done. And what Joshua does is he tells the people to take great care. Look at verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. We must be aware that obedience is a struggle because of sin. The enemy of our soul is always looking for an opportunity to trip us up. And we, we therefore must be prepared and ready, just as in anything else. If you were going to take a trip out into the wilderness, you would prepare yourself. You would have a backpack. You would make sure you had sufficient water and sufficient food and proper shoes and clothing and shelter. Well, we need to look at obedience to the Lord in the same way. Obedience is not something that just falls into our laps. It is the result of taking great care to understand and to know the law of God and to seek by God's grace, to follow it. Joshua gives some specifics to the tribes that apply to you and me in our day. He first tells them to love God. Now this is the beginning and the root of all obedience. True obedience springs from gratitude to the Lord for what He has done. And then he tells them to obey God. Because obedience requires also hard and constant work. That is why, have you ever wondered why the Bible often talks of obedience to the Lord as our walk? You see, our obedience to the Lord is the entirety of our life. We don't take a break from it. It requires hard work. And then finally, he tells them to cling to God. Because God, after all, is our only hope and our blessing. Why then would we do anything other than cling to Him? The second thing that we see in this text is a concern for godliness. There is an alert that comes up for purity before the Lord. Something happens after the eastern tribes depart. We may not notice it or think much of it. But what they do is they build an altar. And we see from verse 10, it is a big one. And so what's the the big deal about this altar? The western tribes are immediately concerned. They pick up on it right away, we see in verse 11. And in verse 12, they do something very interesting. They prepare for war. To us, this seems like a great overreaction. They've just ended a war and they are ready to go to war with their fellow brothers for building an altar. Why are they so concerned? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 12 gives us the answer. 
Because God had forbidden any other altars except the one place of sacrifice. It was because the Lord God knew this was the way to keep purity of worship of the Lord. Because there were still Canaanites in the land. There were still temptations to false gods. And rival altars, if they were to be put up, would lead to false worship. We see this later in Israel's history. It was also a way to keep the people united. They would come around the one altar, all of the tribes. And so what the Westerners see is that this is a step toward division and apostasy. And there is also the great concern that if the eastern tribes rebel against God, God's wrath will come down on all of them. We see this in verse 18. This is not a vain imagination because from past history, from the incident at Peor, we see that they could all be seen as rebelling against God. And there is an interesting phrase here in verse 19. They say only... Do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels. You see, the idea here is that if the eastern tribes rebel against God, they will be making the other tribes rebels as well because there is a unity to the people of God. Now notice two other important things about this coming conflict. The first thing we see in verse 16 is that the tribes are forthright with their concerns. They say, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building an altar? Now that's not really usually how we handle conflict, is it? We might say something more like this. Now, I don't want to be critical... And I'm sure you've got a good reason for building this altar, but some of us were having a discussion, and we wanted to have a dialogue about this altar to kind of get at what you were thinking when you were building this altar, what your reasoning was so that we can, so that we can come to an understanding. We hide our concerns behind soft language. But here, the Israelites are bold in expressing their concerns. But I want you to see a second thing that is often also missing in our conflict. In verse 19 they say, listen, if there's a problem with your land, if that's why you need this altar, come over into our land. We'll give you some of our land. We will sacrifice to win you back. We're willing to give, to sacrifice for you. How often do we hear that in our day? That to win back a brother and sister, we are willing to give up what we have to sacrifice our blessings to win a brother or a sister back. But that's the biblical model. But there is also something else going on. There's not just a need for purity. There is a thought amongst the eastern tribes that they are anxious for unity. And it's actually very encouraging. If we read verses 22 and 23, the eastern tribes agree with the western tribes about their concern. They basically say, 
you know, if this is what was going on, if your concerns were true, we should be punished. We agree with you. How different is that today from our let's agree to disagree mentality? But you see, what they do is they emphatically state that that is not what is going on in verses 26 and 27. The Easterners actually have at heart the exact same concern that is the unity of God's people. They are concerned that there will be a separation. But they see another cause on the horizon. They ask, what if their children are excluded from Israel because of the boundary of the Jordan? Now, this is hard for us to see. But the River Jordan was a huge border between these tribes. And what these tribes want is for their children to follow the Lord. Now this is, if I can put it this way, a proper anxiety. We should be diligent to make sure that our children know the Lord and desire to serve the Lord. What the Westerners are saying rightly is that unity cannot exist without the truth. And what the Easterners counter is that faithfulness cannot exist without unity. And these two thoughts should guide our view of the church. We need truth to have unity. And we need unity to have faithfulness to the Lord. And then the passage ends with a most encouraging ending. We see first that patience and perseverance pay off for Israel. We should not miss something in the account. While Israel was disturbed and it was ready to fight, it was also patient. Their first task was to send a delegation of ten chiefs plus Phinehas, the son of Eleazar. And they were actually eager to hear that they were mistaken. Now, how often do we make the effort to really understand what others are doing and thinking? Unity was preserved. Purity was maintained because of the efforts of Israel. But finally, notice who they give the credit to in verse 31. Today we know that the Lord is in our midst. Why? Because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. We see here that God himself protects his people from his wrath. At first glance that seems odd. Because it's God's wrath that's actually threatened here. How does God protect them from his own wrath? But that is exactly God's way, isn't it? We know he is with us because he protects us from his own wrath. That is the story of Calvary, isn't it? That God shields his people from his wrath underneath the cross. Joshua 22 shows us that the people of God are to be united around the truth. That without the truth, there can be no unity. That without unity, there can be no true faithfulness. And without God, nothing is possible. But with God, anything is possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this 
account of the tribes, of their misunderstanding, and of the way that you superintended all things. Lord, we pray that we too would be eager to maintain purity, to maintain unity, to seek out our brothers, to hold up high the word of the Lord. Lord, bless us as we go from this place this evening. Help us to know that you are with us, that you have promised never to leave us nor forsake us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.